but I was sitting there listening to her story, just moved um, and reminded and humbled that God doesn't need us. Um, he has his word, and it's enough to reveal himself uh, to the world. And we just we have a joy uh, to be a part of what God is doing here, being a part of changed lives, uh, because we believe in a Jesus that is real, who has real answers and real solutions to your real problems, uh, which is what we're talking about here today uh, in our last week of I Can't Believe, looking at the four big uh, hang-ups that people may have to faith. And uh, w- one of the big ones that we've hit really is um, those who've been around church enough to think they've met Jesus but really haven't met Jesus and dealing with those who are skeptical because there's some things that don't seem to add up in their mind. Uh, and this week what we're going to talk about is perhaps our biggest category and perhaps a category that's the most uh, widespread across Christians and non-Christians is those that are disappointed. Um, maybe you've had an experience with God where God didn't show up the way you thought he was going to show up or he didn't meet you the way he thought you should have met him or maybe you had a loss of a loved one that really has just rocked you and you don't know what to do with that. Maybe you have somebody in your life or in your family who um, that is their big reason why they couldn't come to Jesus, why they wouldn't come to Jesus, because they didn't heal this individual that you thought they were going to heal. Or they died too early, or somebody you loved suffered in a way that was just incomprehensible. See, those disappointments are real. Those struggles, those things you deal with are real problems, and we're going to talk today about um, how you work through them. But in that category, there's lots of people that could fit in there. I want to tell you a little bit of a story of a man um, who at one point in his life was on fire for God and was, was chasing after it, but had an event that changed his whole worldview and how that could be us, or maybe is us, and what Jesus would have to say to that. Most of you, I'm sure, are aware of the cable news network CNN uh, and TBS. The guy who uh, started that, his name is Ed Turner. Um, he, he started that whole movement. Well, Ed, um, in his early years, was um, going to a, a youth group, was on fire. He was going on mission trips. He wanted to be a missionary. Um, he just sold out for what um, he believed to be true and good, and that was following God. And Partway down his life, his 15-year-old sister, Mary Jane, uh, developed lupus. Now, lupus is a terribly uh, destructive degenerative tissue disease, and he watched her suffer and suffer, and he would come home and pray and pray and pray that she would be healed, and um, the disease just continued to take a toll on her, and it, it got to the point where he was praying for her to be healed, and she was praying to die because the pain was just too much. Well, um, she unfortunately succumbed to the illness and passed away, and Ed really began to question his faith, wonder if that is the type of God that he is. I don't want anything to do with him. And he just wrestled with a lot of doubt. Well, that doubt took seed in his heart. And then his, his dad, Ted, made a similar confession and said, I don't want anything to do with this God if he would let this daughter of mine suffer. And he um, had breakfast with his wife, went upstairs and ended his life. It sealed the deal for Ed. He was done. He wanted nothing to do with this God. And Ed has um, spent most of his life walking as a proclaimed and um, firm atheist. Now, he has since backed off some of that. But what happened? How do you have a guy who goes from uh, wanting to do mission trips and wanting to travel the world to tell about Jesus to denying that he even exists? And if he does, he's certainly not one worth following. See, that's a turning point that all of us are capable of if we're not careful. That's a turning point um, that many people have made. And maybe for you, the disappointment's not that severe. It's not a loss, but maybe there's some frustrations with God. You thought by now you'd be married. You thought by now you'd be having kids. You you thought by now you'd be having grandkids. You thought maybe your kids would have turned out a little different than they were, and you're frustrated about that. There's there's some things you're looking at, and you're 40, and somebody just walked out of your life, or you're looking at retirement, and it's scary, and you just feel like God should have done something different for you. 
See, the questions, and we all have them, if we're honest, we all have them, they take us places. What do we do with those questions? Where do we go with them, and where do they send us? See, the question for us, we're going to look at John chapter 11, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with this question, John chapter 11. Go ahead and turn there. But I want to ask you, ask you a question first. What do you do when God disappoints you? What do you do when you come up against frustrations or, or wrong expectations? What do you do when there's a disappointment in your heart? And maybe you're not willing to say God has disappointed you because you have strong theology, so you, you know differently, but you feel that way. There's a couple options. The first one, you, like Ed Turner, can conclude that God's not worth following and you lose your faith. It's the, the path, heartbreakingly, many have made. So just walk away. The other one, which perhaps is almost just as dangerous, is that you begin to isolate that question from your faith. This one's incredibly common. What happens here is you have a disappointment, you have a loss, somebody died, there's a sickness, there's something you're having a hard time reconciling with the character of God, so you begin to isolate that thing from the rest of your walk. You just don't talk about it, you just don't think about it, you just don't go there, we don't say that person's name because it hurts too bad, but you're too afraid to lose your faith, and so you just separate the two. The danger there is part of your heart is still over here. Part of who you are, part of your love is still here. If that is separated from your faith, now you have a God who you don't quite love with your whole heart. You love him and you're going to say the right things, but part of you is still over here and broken. But I don't want to deal with what this would mean, so we keep him separate. An incredibly dangerous place to be because it robs the Lord of his glory and it robs you of healing. Or the third answer, is that we enter trials and difficulties and we enter loss and disappointments and we press deeper into our faith. We, we feel the moment in which we want to rage at God and we go, I just must not be seeing something, Lord, let me press into this. Can I tell you from my own personal faith, my own walk, there's been times where I was dealing with such deep disappointment and such frustration with God that I literally flipped the kitchen table in my house. I was wrestling with something deep in my heart, and I said, I don't want to isolate this from you, God, but I'm seeing this, and the two aren't merging, and just out of pure like, frustration, I flipped the table, and unfortunately, my computer was on top of it, and I had to get a new computer. But what I found in that moment was the Lord met me in a way that I never would have met him had I pretended it didn't exist, and had I pretended it was all good, had I just thrown some Christianese over it and moved on. I needed the Lord to meet me in a real way. And he did. John chapter 11, what you get is a group of individuals wrestling to trust the goodness of God. Wrestling to trust and reconcile what they thought to be true and what their experiences are telling them. John chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to read a bunch of this chapter together. And I'm going to skip some verses I'd recommend this week. If you have some time, just read through and soak in. i got to skip a bunch of really good stuff in here, but um, you, you would glean a lot if you could spend some time in it. John chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I'm going to park. We're just going to park and talk, park and talk. This is kind of how uh, the morning's going to go here. So this Mary is not the mother of Jesus. It's distinguished. This is the one who came and um, washed, her, washed Jesus' feet with her hair, not the mother. So this is a, a group of friends. Um, their uh, brother Lazarus is sick, and so they come to Jesus, and they say something really interesting, which is telling right from the beginning. The sentence they say to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
what you see right from the get-go is there's already this need or this feeling inside of them that they have to strong-arm Jesus into doing something good. There's a little manipulation in here. You know Jesus, the one you love? You know him? Yeah? The one you really care about? See, what was happening was they had watched Jesus do good to all of these strangers. They had watched Jesus heal all these people, and they thought, surely, if you would heal them, you're going to heal the one you love. It's already showing they're wondering how good God is. Do I have to convince him to do good, or is it in him to do good? Let's keep uh, reading. Jump to verse uh, 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Isn't that interesting? He loves these guys. He loves Mary Martha. He loves Lazarus. So he stayed two more days. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense if it was like he loved them, but, you know, he got hung up at work, and so he was a little late, right? A but here would make so much more sense. He says, so. There's something really interesting that Jesus is doing here. He's saying, and you're going to see this in a bit, there is an intention to his delay because of his love for them. He loves them enough to wait, and we'll see why he does that in these verses here. Jump down to verse 11. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Good old disciples. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jump to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Jump to verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And, excuse me, you, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. After, this, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Let's jump to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. What I want you to notice as we go through that text, and we're going to come back to some of it, is that Mary and Martha asked Jesus or made the same statement to Jesus. <laughs> you notice that? They both looked at him and said, if you had been here, he wouldn't be dead. If you had done what we wanted you to do, if I were you, this is what I would have done, he'd still be alive. See, they're telling Jesus he missed it. It's your fault. Maybe those are words you're afraid to issue, but it's something your heart has felt for a long time. It's your fault if you had done something. 
See, what I want to focus on today is how Jesus responds to that statement because he gives these two women two entirely different responses to the same statement, which is really the same problem. I want to unpack it because for us, if we want to press deeper into our faith and not run away from these things that scare us or that make us wonder, if we want to press in, um, the solution to that is really what Jesus lays out for us. And, and the question is, what do you do? What do you need to overcome the disappointment in your life? What do you need? Well, Jesus, looking at these two, is going to offer them two different things, and both of them are what we need. See, to Martha, he gives her a truth that can't be shaken. To Martha, he gives her a theological response to her question. He, he says this. Let's jump back to verse uh, 25 here. I want to read it again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, he's talking to her. And what happens before that, if you remember, is she says she's gonna, he's going to live again. And she says, I know. And in, in the last days, he'll be resurrected, right? She knows the Christian answer. <laughs> you know the Christian answer. I know God's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him. But it still hurts now. It's still present now, but Jesus leans in on her and says, listen, I know you're waiting for the resurrection, but I am the resurrection. It's not something out there, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, you're looking at the promise in front of you. And he says, do you believe this? See, what you and I need in moments of disappointment is a truth that can't be shaken. We need new anchor points. Because what happens is our truth and our understanding of God is tied to our experiences. Well, our experiences can get fuzzy. Our experiences only come with limited vision. Our experiences come with limited understanding. And so if we want to begin to define God by our experience, we're going to have a God that either looks a lot like us or disappoints us. What Jesus is saying is something entirely different. He says you need an anchor point that is a truth that can't move. So whatever your experience is, you filter your experience through that truth. See, even though... Martha knew what was true here. The fact that Jesus was two miles away, which you can read in the text, he was two miles away for two days and still didn't show up, overrode what she knew to be true. Her experience overrode truth. That's what happens when our truth is a a moving target rather than the character of God. See, what you believe to be true of the character of God will determine what you believe God to be doing in tragedy. What you believe to be true of God's character will determine what you believe him to be doing in tragedy. See, we all have theological beliefs about God. Even if you're in here and you're not a believer, you have a theological belief about God, which is that he doesn't exist, or that he's not worth following, or that he's not trustworthy. I have a theological belief about God. It's what I believe to be revealed in Scripture. And if experiences determine that, you'll find yourself incredibly doubtful of his character. And maybe that's where some of you are here today. Disappointed, frustrated, not sure if he's capable, trustworthy. See, but here's the thing about truth. Jesus makes this declaration in John chapter 14, a couple of chapters later. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, truth isn't something that Jesus went and found out there and handed to you. He is truth. He is the way. He is the life, which means anything outside of Jesus is a perversion of truth. So we might think that we have the truth in our hand, but if it's not Jesus, it's not truth. It's all the other religions out there are a perversion of truth. 
And so when we're saying find truth that can't be shaken, it's not that you find some belief that can't be shaken. You find a person who can't be shaken, and his name is Jesus. That anchor point to your life is not some facts you learned. It's a person you knew. It's a person you saw revealed in the word of God. Now, all of a sudden, when the waves hit, I hear the experiences. I feel that pain, and it hits truth. And I'm forced to now filter what I know to be true through there. But I want you to see how Jesus responded to Mary because it's entirely different. Jump to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. You see, Jesus hears the same exact question, but he knows it's coming from a different heart. He knows it's coming from a different soul. And he looks at her and he doesn't have Bible theology one-on-one with her. He looks at her and says, I see your pain. I feel your pain. I understand where you are. He was deeply moved and he begins to weep. You see, what he showed to Mary was that not only do you need truth that's going to hold you steady, but you need a love that is felt. You need a love that is felt. You need a Savior who's going to walk in and say, I know the pain of loss that you're walking through. I know the deep hurt and disappointment that you feel. I feel it too. And Jesus begins to weep, the God of the world weeping with her. You know what I find interesting about this? Why was Jesus crying if he was all-knowing And he knew in 10 minutes, he's about to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. Well, why why would he? Why wouldn't he just look at her and be like, listen, Mary, just chill out. Like, I got this, all right? Put some Christian music on, wait about 10 minutes, it'll be good. No, he doesn't. Why? Because he's revealing to you that he's a savior who meets you there. And regardless of whether your pain is 10 minutes or 10,000 years, he still feels it the same because he loves you so much. What also was interesting is though he knew he was going to do it in 10 minutes and he knew it was going to be a glorious resurrection and that pain was going to turn into something beautiful, the same is true of your pain. God knows that in 10 minutes it might turn around, but here's the deal about the Lord. He's outside of time. So for him, 10 minutes is the same as 10,000 years. And yet, he weeps with you. He feels your pain. He knows in 100 years that pain will one day make sense to you. He knows in maybe even 50 years he's going to make sense of that whole thing, but he's there and he's present to show you he's a God that cares. Because I know it to be true, but I need to know it to be true. Let's see how he responds. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus, then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
There's something happening in the text here that the, the English doesn't really reveal for us. There's this word or phrase, deeply moved, that's in there a couple times. Um, there's a lot of scholars that have said there's really no good English word that relays what this word means. And essentially, then we see it as deeply moved and we think sympathy, but that's really not what's happening here. The word connotates like an animal snorting uh, before it charges, you know, like a bull, like, <sighs> like just kind of making that grunt noise before it gets ready to go. Another scholar said um, it would be more appropriate to call it like a wrestler getting ready to go into the ring. He's preparing for his opponent, right? He's got Rocky music on. He's doing his walkout. He's snorting. He's stomping. He's just raw, like there's some anger in there. What's happening is not soft, timid Jesus. What's happening is Jesus is staring down the greatest enemy of mankind. He's staring down death, and he's grunting and groaning like a warrior getting ready for battle as he's looking at death, and he's anguished over it because he knows death is your greatest enemy. It's destroying the creation he loves. He's broken over this moment because the one he loves, Lazarus, is being affected by sin, which he hates, and he's ready to go to war with it. And so he stands there looking at the tomb in a loud voice, and he yells at death. He says, you have no hold here. Lazarus, come out. You see this warrior going to battle for you, and I don't know if you know this, but the death rate's holding steady at 100%. It's coming for all of us. And what Jesus is saying is, I have a solution to the biggest problem in your life. And he yells in anger. That just that does something to my heart. <laughs> It's not hippie Jesus with long flowing hair. That's Jesus going to war for you. So the question is, does he love us? Yes, he loves you. He's going to take down the enemy that you can't defeat. And you know what? What's going to happen? You're going to see this in verse 47. We don't have time to look at it. Look at it later. This event triggered Jesus' death. They see that this guy just raised somebody from the dead and like, oh, we got to stop this guy. And it starts the events that leads to his funeral. You see, the only way he could interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to start his own. The only way to defeat death for you and for the ones that you love was to start his own funeral procession. So Jesus was going to go to the cross, be buried to defeat your enemy. And here you get a foreshadow of him yelling at death because it destroys the ones he loves. Verse 44. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What a story. And it can be your story. See, Jesus is standing here looking at this man saying, take off the grave clothes. Death has no hold here. And one day he will look at those who, according to this passage, believe in him and they will say, take off those grave clothes. Death has no hold. Come to eternity with the Father. That's the good news of Jesus, friends. Come on. And some of us are in here today, and we're still mad at God because somebody we know ended up in the grave sooner than we thought. And what God is doing is saying, I'm here. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the solution that you need. I am the great I am. And you can have those death, grave, clothes removed from you. See, the problem of running from God with your questions and doubts, is you'll never get the answers. The problem with isolating is that you'll live life with a broken leg. The glory of leaning in is you find the resurrection that was revealed here and what they thought said, don't open that grave. You're just going to get junk in there. You're just going to get decomposition. But instead, what they got was recomposition. What they experienced and what they thought was going to be death, Jesus turned into a victory. 
And so they leaned in, said, help us make sense of this. God brought life to it. I don't know when God's going to roll away the stone in your life. I don't know when he's going to make sense of the pain that you just went through. I don't know when that stone gets moved, but here's the thing. This passage tells me that it's coming. It might be 10 minutes. It might be 10 years. It might not be till you get to heaven, but I know what's true in my life is that I've seen God move away stones already that I never thought he was going to move away. Look at things that happened a few years ago, and you go, how did you work that out for your glory and my good, but yet you did? Isn't it then possible? That when you get to the gates of heaven, all those stones are going to be rolled away and it's all going to make sense. I don't get it now. But I have a truth that can't be shaken. That I have a God who already is in my future and it's glorious. So I have my doubts. I have my wrestles. I have my questions. But they've met a Savior who's never failed me. When I thought he failed me, I just didn't see that the two-day delay was really for my good. I didn't see that he brought me into that circumstance to reveal that I wasn't trusting him with my whole heart. I didn't realize before that God was bringing me into a place of closer dependency on him. So for those of you who are disappointed, those of you standing there looking at the tomb door, I don't know what's written on that tomb door for you, but I know it hurts. And I know you're dealing with it. The question is, will you lean into the Savior who's already there waiting to embrace you? He's already there waiting to yell at your greatest enemy. And listen, if we have a God who chooses, while we were still his enemies, to die for us, how much more as his friends is he never going to forsake us? You see, there's two times in the Bible when Jesus wept. One here when he's seeing death destroy not only Lazarus, but the the hearts of people around them. Jesus cries a second time in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. He knows what it's going to mean to take your sin and my sin and the sin of the world on his shoulders. He feels the weight of it and he's crying so intensely that he had a medical condition where he starts uh, pouring out drops of blood out of him, which happens from extreme exertion. And he feels the weight and he's weeping and he turns to his friend, his disciples, and he said, would you pray with me? And what do they do? They fell asleep. They left him friendless. He cries out to God, but God had to turn his back on him because he was bearing the sin of the world on him. So Jesus died godless and friendless so you and I would never have to. He was forsaken so you never could be. He went to the cross to die the death you should have died so that you never have to experience that moment. See, that's the good news of Jesus. I will never be forsaken. I will never be lost. I will have an eternity with Jesus. And one day I will get an answer to all the questions. And the answer is Jesus. Why would you not want him? Why would you not give him all your heart? He's proved himself trustworthy and good. What's holding you back? Let's pray. God, words fail sometimes to explain what your love feels like. We can do our best to explain it, God, but to know your love and to feel your love and to have you meet us in these moments, God, there's no words for that. I pray that would be true in the hearts of anyone staring at a tomb door, dealing with disappointment, wrestling with frustrations. God, that you would meet them in a real way right now. I thank you for your word, that it is a guiding truth to us, God. I thank you for the story of Mandolin and how your word led her straight to you, God. And I pray that would be true for each heart in this room. 
that your word would lead us straight to you, Jesus. Pray that we wouldn't be afraid of what's in our heart. We wouldn't be afraid of our doubts. We wouldn't be afraid of those things. We would find you faithful and trustworthy. If we've dealt with disappointments in the past, God, I pray that you would help us find healing for those and find in you life and life abundant. God, we praise you for defeating death for us. We give you great honor and great glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.